Thanks, guys. Again, I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. Um, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. Before we do that, I wanted to thank you for uh, helping us to give to Hope Pregnancy Center. Uh, Hope Pregnancy Center is a local ministry uh, that is really the result of a lot of churches in the area coordinating uh, to care for those who are facing unwanted pregnancies. Um, and so instead of yelling at people about their choices, we come alongside practically through Hope Pregnancy Center and say, we want to help you to choose life. We're, we're going to practically take steps to meet you where you are. Hope Pregnancy Center is a fantastic ministry, so I encourage you to check them out, to look them up online, uh, to look into volunteering with them and giving to them. We give regularly. There's a yearly fundraiser they do called the Baby Bottle Boomerang. Anybody remember that? We had a bunch of baby bottles out here. Uh, we collect change, collect money, um, collect $1,000 bills, you know, whatever you have to put in those baby bottles. And they just sent us a thank you note that said, you uh, helped them to raise, just at our church, $1,207. So thank you very much for your contribution. Um, all the other churches in the area that contributed put their total at $39,500 just for this one fundraiser, so thank you for that. Um, out of that fundraiser, they're able to operate multiple different centers throughout Bell County. Um, they do, uh, what do you call that, where you rub the belly and see the, what's that called? Ultrasound, ultrasound. <laughs> it's like my mind went blank. You know that thing? Yeah, they do ultrasound machines. Uh, they're able to help women to you know, find clothes and they have a pantry and uh, take care of those children. So anyway, just a lot of great stuff happening there um, and thank you for, for your involvement in that. All right, so now we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we have strategically placed one near to you, and we want you to grab that, open it up. We'll be around page 905 in that black Bible, and we'd love for you to keep it. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to have your own Bible that you can mark up and read and study with us from week to week. Um, so you can grab that and take it home if you want to. We're in this series called The Last Words of Jesus. And so what we're seeing in the Gospel of John, kind of the general structure is John spends half of the book talking about the three years of Jesus's ministry. And then what we've been in, in The Last Words of Jesus, is the second half of the book where he zeroes in on the, on the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus comes into Jerusalem this last week to celebrate the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover is this Jewish celebration where the Jews remembered that God's a redeeming God, that God is a rescuing God, that God is the God that rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so that is this high celebration, one of the biggest, most important celebrations in the Jewish worldview. And Jesus comes to offer himself as, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's what this last week is about. And now we're down to what I would call the last hour. There's this theme that Jesus has used again and again in the Gospel of John about his hour coming. He said, my hour is not here yet, my hour is coming, uh, and he uses this phrase in, in a lot of different ways, and so today we're calling it, the hour has come. Now, his actual death and resurrection happens over hours and a few days, right? But he's talking about this pivotal, pivotal moment here. His crucifixion specifically is what we're looking at today. Um, if you want to get the rest of the story about the resurrection from the dead, uh, we looked at that over about three weeks right around Easter time. So you can look back at those recordings uh, to see those. After we finish today, just to kind of let you know where we're headed, we're going to do four weeks of topical sermons. And then after that, we're going to look at the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the life of Joseph. We'll look at God's uh, dysfunctional family in the Old Testament through the life of Joseph. So that'll be a great series that we'll enjoy in the fall together. But today we are in John 19 looking at this hour that has finally come. 
Um, I want to kind of give you an overview of how this phrase is used in the Gospel of John, okay? To set up the themes where Jesus keeps talking about what does this hour mean? What does this big moment mean? And so Jesus says this in John chapter 4. Jesus says that when this hour comes, people are going to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. That's as opposed to worshiping by the power of our flesh and in false ways. That's how we normally worship as human beings. But through this hour, through what Jesus is going to do, through his death, through his resurrection, we're now going to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Chapter 5, Jesus uses this phrase about his hour coming, and he says, people are going to rise from the dead. People are going to rise from the dead because of what he's doing in this hour, in John chapter 19. In chapter 12, he says that all men are going to see his glory. Every kind of person, every tongue, every tribe, we're all going to see his glory. And then in chapter 13, he says, through this hour coming, he's going to go and be with the Father. This is going to send him to his place at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign from heaven. Chapter 16, he used an interesting phrase about his hour coming, and he talked about being, it being like the delivery of a baby. I, I warned you, men, uh, don't act like you know what it's like for someone to deliver a baby, but it's okay for Jesus to do that, right? And Jesus said that this hour coming is like a woman giving birth, which is a really painful, I hear, really painful terrible process that leads to this incredible joyful new life and he's saying that's what this hour is going to be like it's going to be painful it's going to be labor but it's going to produce new life that's what he said in john chapter 16 about the hour coming and then chapter 17 we were just there a couple weeks ago in chapter 17 he said um, kind of returning to this glory idea he said the father's going to glorify the son and the son's going to glorify the father remember what glory is glory is like the beauty the weight the substance of something and so in this hour, we're going to see the glory of Jesus. So I'm going to warn you, it's going to be a little, a little longer than normal today, um, but it's going to be worth it because all that we're going to see in this hour, um, this hour coming. Have you ever used the phrase like, this is my big hour? Have you ever used that before? Or this is my moment? Have you ever heard that or used that phrase before? When I played high school football, um, one of the things that a high school football coach has to do is to help a teenager who's uh, not very mature, not very serious about anything, take seriously what they're doing, right? Because I don't know if you know this, if, if you're not from, you know, half of you are not from Texas. In, in Texas, high school football is like a cult. It's kind of an alternative religion, so to speak. Um, and it's really important, especially to the coaches because their livelihood depends on it, right? And so I, I'm kind of joking about that. I had some good godly men that were coaches. Uh, but it is something they were always trying to help us take more seriously. And so what they did is we had this sign on our field house, and we would slap the sign as we walked out to our game. And that was a, a sign of respect, a sign of honor, not like a, right? But we would hit it to show honor and say, I believe in what the sign says. And this is what the sign said. It said, 48 minutes to play, a lifetime to remember. High school regulation game is 48 minutes long. 48 minutes to play, a lifetime to remember. And the whole point of that was like, focus your efforts here, boys, right? Pay attention. This matters. This moment, this hour is really important. The rest of the New Testament says, says a similar thing about our whole lives, that our lives are like a brief moment. We studied Ecclesiastes back in the fall. It's just like this, this mist, and then they're gone. Are you going to make your life count? Are you going to make your moments count? Are you going to make the hour that God has given you count? That can be a heavy burden, Right? We, we might be afraid of that. We, we could be tempted to go in a couple of different directions. One is like, of course, I'm going to do it. I'm awesome. I can make my life count, right? 
That's the danger of pride. There's another danger of despair. Like, I can't do this, right? This is too much pressure. I can't measure up. I can't make my life count. I don't know how. What I want you to see in this story today is that because Jesus made his moment count, we can. Because Jesus faced the hour where he was shown to us as our true king, we can face our hour. You might have weeks to live. You might have 50 years to live. I don't know how many moments you have, but the New Testament calls on us to make it count. What are you going to do with the life you've been given? The only way to really make it count is to see that Jesus made it count for us and then to respond to that. So I want to read the text, and what I want to do is we've got a lot of text to handle today, so I just want to read a few verses to start, kind of get us launched, and then we'll go through and read the whole story. So chapter 19 Let's look at verse 12, and we'll start there. In verse 12, we're going to pick it up in the middle of this trial. There's a back and forth between the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and the Jewish leaders. And so we're picking up the story here with Pontius Pilate in verse 12. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, talking about Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the hour where Jesus gave himself, where he was crucified, where he died, the most horrible death a person could die. And he did that for you and for me. Um, so let me pray for us. Let me pray that God would teach us, that he would help us today. And then we'll look at the rest of the story in more detail. God, we thank you for your love. We pray that you would help us. This is, um, this is a lot of material but it's also hard material, so, so I just pray that you would give us the grace to hear what we need to hear in this, um, that you would bring your peace to us, and that this would change us. We thank you for displaying your love for us in this, that Christ died for us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we move through the story, long section. We're going to pick up a little bit at the end of chapter 18. We're going to go all, all the way through most of chapter 19. And there are three big things I want us to see. Uh, when we see this theme, this, this John theme of the hour coming, this hour comes, and then when this hour comes, the central thing we're seeing is the death of Jesus. But we also are going to see this word repeated again and again throughout the story, and that's king, right? We just read it in the phrase, Pilate saying king of the Jews. We think he was kind of kind of uh, making fun of the Jews a little bit there, but speaking prophetically, Jesus really is king. He's king of the universe. And so this king theme is going to show up again and again. So Jesus' hour, his moment that he's going to make count, is him being displayed as our king. And I, wanna, I want us to see three things as we move through the story. One is that Jesus is the law-keeping king. So we're going to look at that through the, through the lens of the trial. The trial is going to show some contrasts and some ironies. It's going to make us think about, am I a law-keeper? It, are they law keepers? Is, is Jesus really righteous? Am I righteous? We're going to ask some of those questions. He's the law keeping king. And then we're going to see that he is the self-sacrificing king. He willingly gives himself, right? It is, it is amazing. This is not like, 
Jesus is spinning out of control and he can't stop it. Jesus is giving him, he is sovereign and he gives himself as a self-sacrificing king. And then finally, what we're gonna see is that Jesus is a life-changing king. Like that sacrifice, that willingness to be the perfect king that is a substitute for us, that actually changes our life. That actually makes a difference in real life. We'll end there. So first of all, we're gonna see that Jesus is the law-keeping king. We see this with the story of the trial with Pontius Pilate. Last week, we looked at the trial with the Jews, and now the Jewish leaders have taken Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor here. They're in and out of the headquarters. We'll pick up in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So this is chapter 18, verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. First irony of the story, right? Um, They're so worried about keeping the law on the ceremonial side, they're willing to unjustly sacrifice, murder their true king. And what's really interesting here is when you go back and you read the Old Testament, it wasn't actually illegal for them to go into a Gentile's house, right? They, they were just supposed to eat pure foods, and, you know, and there were some certain regulations that they could eat this and they couldn't eat that. And so just to be safe, they kept adding regulations. They kept adding laws and they kept like backing away from anything that might even get close to violating their laws. So now to the, they're to the point where they, they can have like barely any contact at all with Gentiles. They can't even go into his house, into his headquarters. And so that, that wasn't actually a law in the Old Testament, right? They're, they're kind of backing up, they're adding extra hedges around what God says. Kind of reminds us of Adam and Eve talking to the serpent, right? Where the serpent says, did God really say? And Eve was like, yeah, he said, he said don't even get near, right? Don't even touch, which is, which is not really what he said. He said, don't eat. And so we have this habit, especially when we fall into legalism and thinking we can be justified before God by keeping the law perfectly, where we keep adding laws to it. And then as Jesus critiqued the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, often we don't do the more important things like love and justice and mercy, but we're doing these other ceremonial things and then we're adding to them and we get all confused. We, we don't keep the law very well. I think that's the big idea, right? It's a thing that human beings have a problem with. We just don't keep the law very well. And this highlights that Jesus is the one that actually does keep the law perfectly. So all that, verse one, I'll, I'll try to go a little more quickly now, sorry. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So lots of legal language here. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. I'll pause there for just a minute. You might be thinking like, wait, weren't they trying to stone people? Weren't they trying to put people to death? If you've read the Gospels, that happens multiple times. Um, So it's one of those things where they didn't really have the legal rights to put people to death and to stone people. But as long as they weren't causing a revolution, right? As long as it was a small lynching or a small mob, the Romans would look the other way. Uh, so that wasn't really right when they would do that, but the Romans would allow that oftentimes. Here, the Jews want to really make sure they, they do this the right way, quote unquote, and, and put him down and end Jesus. So, so they want the Romans to put him to death. So they're saying, we, we can't really do this. We don't really have the right. Um, they did have a lot of rights. They had more rights than than most uh, tribes and most small nations that Rome conquered. The Jews actually had more rights than a lot of them, but they weren't technically allowed to put people to death. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is referring to earlier, like in John chapter three, where Jesus says, I'm gonna be lifted up and draw all men to myself. 
um, and he compares himself to the serpent uh, being lifted up in the wilderness. So it's this concept where, where Jesus prophesied, I'm going to be lifted up, metaphorically speaking, I'm going to be lifted up physically as well on the cross. And that's the kind of death I'm going to die. So they're saying, hey, here's a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So again, an emphasis on is he guilty or not? Now look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. This is how Jesus sees his kingdom. He is the truth teller. He's speaking truth. He has a kingdom from heaven, and he's here to speak truth. And Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, right? So we talk about this, to be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom is to be one who hears him, who responds to him in faith. Says, Jesus, you tell me what to do. And then Pilate gives this really cynical answer. It's hard to, hard to know exactly what Pilate is thinking and to reconstruct all of this right, but it seems pretty cynical. Pilate says in verse 38, what is truth? Can you even know truth, right? And he goes on after this. He said, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He's going to say this multiple times. Again, in the story, as we follow the flow here, we're supposed to be thinking about guilt and innocent. Is he guilty or not? I'd really encourage you to read the Gospels. If you've never read the Gospels, read the Gospels. Get to know Jesus, right? The Bible can be a hard book to read. I understand that. Part of why I love to teach it is because I, th- I think there are all these riches and all this goodness and truth in the Bible, but I know most people struggle to read it, so that, that's why I love to teach it, right? I like to help people see, man, there's good stuff here. But just read the Gospels. Read the accounts of Jesus. See for yourself who Jesus is. The Gospels, the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the most historically reliable records that we have about Jesus. But even go outside that if you want. You can read other weird stories about, you know, there's some other weird stuff out there. There's also some other historical stuff about Jesus. Nobody thinks that Jesus was a guilty, bad, terrible guy. People pretty much universally agree, followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus, that he was good and righteous. See for yourself. Read. See what you think about it. Here in this story, what this is highlighting is, He's not guilty. And just to be clear, I I don't think Pilate saying he's not guilty is like the ultimate cosmic decision, right? Like Pilate doesn't get to really decide that for us, but it just in the story is highlighting this reality that Jesus is the true law-keeping king. He's the only one that's righteous. None of us were really righteous. None of them were really righteous, but Jesus was. So it's important to note where the story is taking us here. So he says, I find no guilt in him in verse 38. Verse 39 Pilate says this to the Jewish leaders, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Everybody agreed Barabbas was a bad dude. And they're like, no, we don't want you to release Jesus. We want you to release this bad guy. What I want you to see is that this story is about you and me. We are Barabbas. If you have faith in Jesus, 
Jesus is the one who is the law-keeping king who went to the cross for you. And you and I are the law-breaking kings and queens. We're the ones who have been rebels. We're the ones who have been Barabbas. We're the ones who have been robbers. And we're set free. He goes on, chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. <laughs> this is a horrible thing to have happen. A flogging is not just whipping uh, with a leather whip. Flogging is a, a leather whip with bits of bone and glass and metal attached to the end. They were just, just stripping the flesh off of Jesus. And I'm just going to apologize up front. This is, this is a gruesome thing, and there's going to be some gruesome things we say here, but, but this is the, the length to which Jesus was willing to go for you and for me. So Jesus was flogged. His, his flesh was, was ripped apart. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. That was painful as well, but not just painful physically. This is shameful, right? They're mocking him here. Look at this, they, they arrayed him in a purple robe, so they're teasing, they're making fun. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So here Pilate, it seems that Pilate is saying, Okay, well maybe if I just beat him, then they'll get their pound of flesh and, and they'll be willing to let me release him. There's just back and forth where you can see that Pilate is trying to release him, not seeing him as truly guilty. I find no guilt in him, he says again. Verse 4, verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, Pilate doesn't in the end get to decide if Jesus is guilty or not, but the story is helping us to see he said it three times. This guy's not guilty. This guy's not guilty. This guy is not guilty. He is the law-keeping king. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, again, it's hard to, it's hard to interpret everything that, that Pilate's thinking here. We know in the other Gospels that Pilate got a, a message from his wife that his, his wife had a weird nightmare about Jesus, Right? And so we know there's this, this weird mix of Pilate here in this presentation clearly didn't think he was really guilty, but also we're going to see this conflict he has with the Jewish leaders where it's like he's needling them, he's trying to make fun of them, right? So it's not like he's this follower of Jesus, not like he's this lover of Jesus, but also there's this weird tug that's happening here where he's, he's afraid, this guy considers himself to be the son of God, he ends up crucifying him and there's a kind of battle, it's just this like triangle of all these different things pulling on Pilate here in the story. But again, what I want you to see is this story is supposed to, us to, to help us see that Jesus is not guilty and that we are guilty. Um, there's an ancient tradition of using scales to symbolize justice, right? Um, here's the idea. If you were selling something in the market and you said, you know, here's 10 pounds of, of rice, well, you put it on the scales to see if it actually is 10 pounds of rice, right? You're measuring things out to make sure they're true and right. And so scales were actually used in ancient markets, and today they're still used on the top of uh, courthouses as a symbol of justice, right? The question we're supposed to ask as we look at this story is, on the scales of justice, how does Jesus weigh out, right? Is, just, uh, is Jesus guilty or not? Is he the law-keeping righteous king or not? And then we're supposed to turn and look at ourselves 
This is throughout the New Testament, right? Here in this focus story, it's a narrative, but you can, you can back up from these narratives and read the whole Bible. This is the theme of the whole Bible. Like, are you willing to look at yourself? Are you willing to pull out the scales of, of justice and weigh your own life? Are you willing to consider yourself? Uh, throughout our worship services, we have this time where we just focus on confession, right? Um, we, we say this in different ways each week, um, but kind of fundamental to who Christians are is Christians are not the people that say, we're the right ones and we do all the right things. That's not what a Christian is. Christians are the people that say, I've been weighed in the scales of justice and I've been found wanting. I lack. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've sinned and I need a savior who hasn't sinned, who has not sinned, who will take my place. And that's what the story is pressing us towards. A verse we love to quote, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you don't know the reality of that verse and how it applies to your own life, you don't really know Jesus. We all have to come to this place of, of recognizing, of confessing, I'm a sinner. I haven't kept the law. Jesus did keep the law. He's my true substitute. He's the unspotted lamb, to use the, the Passover symbolism of this week of celebration in history here. He's the one that takes my place. Do you recognize that? Have you come to the place of being able to confess, not just we go through the motions in some religious ceremony at a church worship service or a confessional booth, but have you come to the place of really being able to confess before God? I'm a sinner and I I need your perfect righteousness because I don't have a righteousness of my own. I'm not a law keeper. I'm a law breaker. James 2.10 says, if you've broken the law in just one part, you've broken all of it, right? None of us perfectly keep it. Romans, where it has this, Romans 3.23, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, that point in Romans is the end or the climax of an argument over three chapters, where in chapter one, Paul says, there's one way of breaking the law, and that's the pagan way, where we just say, forget God, I don't care what he says. Some of you have broken the law in that way. Then there's the sneakier religious way of breaking the law, and he focuses in on the Jews on chapter two, and this might apply to you if you grew up in the Bible Belt or in a religious home, but it's where you say, I have the law and I've kept it. And that's called lying, right? Because none of us have kept the law. And so Paul turns his guns on both groups. He says, no, no matter which group you've grown up in, you're a lawbreaker. Whether you deny that law exists or you say, yeah, law is good and I keep it, either way, you're a lawbreaker. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's another verse in Romans that's really helpful for us to make sense of this, and it's Romans 6.23. It shows the contrast between what we get from our law breaking or what we can have by faith in Jesus because of his law keeping. It's Romans 6.23. Sometimes people call these key verses in Romans the Roman road, like simple explanation of what Jesus' death and resurrection does for us. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That means as we sin... As we keep breaking the law, we're punching a time clock where we're earning the wage of death and destruction. But the gift of God, it's a gift, it's grace, it's not something you can earn, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We're lawbreakers, he's the law keeper. Have you come to face that reality in your own life? We call this summary the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus is for you. That when you and I couldn't do it, he stepped up. And, and gave himself. He's the one that became that sacrifice for us. So here are the two applications. We need to confess our guilt. I've sinned, I'm a lawbreaker. And we need to confess his righteousness. But Jesus was a law keeper. And he stood in as my perfect 
substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this leads us to Jesus as the self-sacrificing king. So in verses 9 through 24, we're going to see him giving himself willingly on the cross. So this is not just something where, I said it earlier this way, it's not like Jesus was spinning out of control. He is sovereign. He is Lord of the universe, and he is willingly giving himself for you. This is how we see that God loves us, is that Jesus steps in to this. Jesus takes this bullet for us, so to speak. So let's pick up the story in verse 9. So chapter 19, verse 9. He entered his headquarters again, this is Pilate, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's saying, like, who do you think is king around here? You don't really think you are king, right? I have authority here. I control your destiny, Jesus. Those are the kinds of things that Pilate is trying to get across here. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus is not letting him off the hook. He's like, yeah, it's still a sin for you to kill me. But these other guys are more guilty because basically I'm giving myself willingly. The authority has been granted from heaven. That's where my kingdom comes from, not on earth. So again, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm giving myself here. This is not me being an unwilling sacrifice, but a, but a willing sacrifice. And that should, that should change our view of God. How do you see God? Does you see God as someone who kind of resents you? Or do you see God as a God who loves you and willingly came after you, and it cost him a lot? Another verse in what we often call the Romans Road is, is Romans 5.8. It says, God demonstrates or shows his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up and then say, okay, you've done such a good job cleaning yourself up. Now I love you. He did this first. He gave himself. Jesus willingly did this, and that's how we see God's love. So so don't miss that. This is a gruesome story. This is a hard story. But the rest of the New Testament puts it in perspective and says this is what we needed, and this is a step that God was willing to take to show his love to us. This is how you will know the love of God is another way to interpret that. You're not going to really know the love of God unless you understand this and see what's happening here. So verse 12, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is getting really weird. The Jews who so often resented Caesar's leadership, Roman rule, are now calling on it so that they can have Jesus put to death. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, so sixth hour of the day would, would mean noon, a sixth hour of sunlight. It was about noon, and here he is at the official place of judgment now, and he says this, uh, behold your king. Now again, we, we kind of think he's mocking them, right? We kind of think he's needling the Jewish leaders, but he's also speaking prophetically. He's, he's speaking unwillingly, speaking truth. What is truth? This is the truth. Behold your king. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, yes, did they officially have to bow the knee to Caesar? They did, but, but they didn't shout this kind of thing. This is, not, this is out of character. This is not the kind of thing they wanted to say. Why did they say this? Because they wanted to put Jesus to death. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So historians note uh, just geographically that this hillside looked like a skull, kind of looked like a skull face, but it's also the place where people were killed. And so it was purposely on a, on a big road into the city so everybody could see, right? And he's carrying his own cross. Remember, he's already been flogged, so the flesh on his back is ripped off, and now he's got a big um, rough piece of timber on his back. This is one of the most gruesome, terrible ways to die. Uh, historians tell us that the Persians invented crucifixion and then the Romans perfected it. Just like a gross way of, of even talking, right? Perfected torture. It's just such a, such a horrible thing, such a horrible way to, to die. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. These were the three main languages of this area, so everybody could see it. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So again, we, we would assume that Pilate was just trying to make him mad, but he's speaking truth. He, here is the king of the Jews. And just like I said with Romans 5.8, this is how we see the love of God, right? You see the love of God in that he gave his son for us. While we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to clean up our act, Christ died for us. That's how you see the love of God. I would argue that there's a connection there to the lordship of God. The way that Jesus becomes Lord, that God becomes king in your life personally, is by seeing his love, right? Because without that love, we're still rebels. I'm still running away saying, I don't, I don't really know if I want you to lead me or be my king, Lord. But when I see the love of God, that's what changes my heart, and I actually see him as my king actually see him as my leader, my ruler, the one I want to follow. I'll follow anywhere. And, and so see, I want you to see that. I want you to see this. John wants you to see this. He's the self-sacrificing king. He's the one that gave his life for you. This is what it means to see Jesus as king, is to see him sacrificing himself on the cross. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each shoulder, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I'll pause there for, for just a moment. Um, the crucifixion involved, as we said, flogging. It involved literally being nailed to these wooden beams. It involved um, basically drowning in your own fluids, suffocating, because as they hung there, it became more and more impossible for them to breathe. This was a horrible, horrible torture. 
Today, we use the word excruciating, which has crux in the middle of it, has cross in the middle of it. That word is a, is a way we speak in our own language to say, this is the most painful thing a person could go through. And that's what it was. It was something that was created to shame and also to cause pain. And Jesus willingly did this for you and for me. He's the self-sacrificing king. My wife and I saw the movie The Passion when it first came out several years ago. Um, and when we saw it, we were surprised a little bit because a lot of our friends had seen it, right? And I think especially a lot of our pagan friends had seen it that didn't grow up in a church. My wife and I had both been going to church for, for many years at this point and had heard the story, right? We'd heard about Jesus' sacrifice and that he was brutally killed for us. And so we were surprised that so many of our friends didn't realize it. Like they just didn't get it. And that's one of the things that the Passion movie was kind of famous for was being gruesome, right? And showing vividly, it's hard, hard to watch, hard to see, but it, it just vividly displayed the lengths to which Jesus was willing to go to as our self-sacrificing king. Um, so I'm not saying like everybody go out and see the Passion. Wh- what I'm actually saying is, is read the text, read the story. So the power that this movie, The Passion, had was in helping people to see that Jesus died for you. I have a friend that works with Muslims, and he said, man, a lot of the Muslims, specifically one tribe, which I don't remember at this point, but they they actually liked the movie The Passion. They had this great respect for Jesus when they saw everything that he went through. They saw the, the gruesomeness of it because they recognized the links that Jesus was willing to go to. They had respect Another weird, uh, weird thing that the discussion I've had with some people over the years is, is like, why do Christians use the cross as a symbol? Because when you think about it, it's in poor taste, right? Like we hang a cross in the front of this room and we do it and it, it's, it's kind of like hanging a noose in the front of the auditorium. It's kind of like hanging an electric chair in the front of the auditorium or a hypodermic needle or something, right? Like some instrument of death, a guillotine. Why do we do that? When you really think about it, it's kind of gross and kind of offensive. But we keep it as one of our central symbols because it reminds us, again, of what Jesus was willing to do. It reminds us that Jesus was willing to die for us. So I want you to see that, and I want you to interpret it through what the New Testament says in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while you and that while I were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we're supposed to see. We're not supposed to just grovel in the grossness of it, right? It's not like the grosser, the better, and the more bad feelings you have, the better. The idea is for you to see that God was willing to come after you and pay this incredible cost to save you, to redeem you. Because God loves you. He values you in this way. And before we move on to the next point, I just want you to see that what this does, when we worship a king who sacrifices for us, what that does is it changes us into sacrificers. When we see that the God of the universe was a self-sacrificing king, it makes us into the kind of people that are willing to give ourselves up to love and serve others. And often it's just the little things, right? Giving up your time, giving up your emotions, giving up your money, giving up your skills, being patient. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, being long-suffering with each other, right? Uh, two of the biggest ways that we show love to the world, that we show unity among our diversity, is by showing hospitality and by showing patience. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That's driven by the cross. 
because Jesus was willing to give himself for us, that changes us into the kinds of people that are willing to give ourselves for others. Again, we don't give ourselves for others to earn God's love because God's love is demonstrated to us in this. He took the first step. He gave himself for us. And that's what pushes us to give ourselves to others in, in big ways and in little ways. So a question to ask yourself is, is my life marked by a willingness to give little pieces of me away? Romans 12:1 says it this way. Because of his mercy, in view of his mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Every day is just another opportunity to say, Jesus loved me, I'm gonna love others. Jesus sacrificed for me, I'm gonna sacrifice for others. And we, and we do this every day in little ways. So the last thing we wanna see is that Jesus is the life-changing king. So life-changing king, so he actually changes our life, what I was just talking about. He actually drives us to, to give ourselves and to serve others in different ways. And I just wanna point out a few little interesting things in the story here. Um, really three big ideas from this section, uh, verses 25 through 37, and we'll end there. So look at verse 25. It says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So just in that one verse, verse 25, we see something really interesting. When we looked at the resurrection a few weeks ago or, or a few months ago around Easter time, we recognize this as well, that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And here we see women as the brave witnesses to the cross as well. From the way we understand the story, the Apostle John was here, but all the, apost the other apostles had run and were, were fleeing and were scared. And so women are put in this place of being heroic and being important and being central to the story about Jesus. And what that's done is this, plus the, the larger teaching about men and women and how we're all made in the image of God, what that's done is how where Christianity is taught, it's changed society's views of women. Now, now, granted, often women are still mistreated. Often women are still not treated well and right. But what you see in the history of the world is where Christianity is taught, women are elevated and, and seen as people who matter. In the first century, in both Roman and Jewish culture, they weren't seen that way. So here's a really interesting, just apologetic note, and then we'll move on. If you were going to try to sell something, if you were going to try to make up a story, you would bend to the culture, Right? If you were going to try to sell a lie to a Roman culture and Jewish culture, you would have agreed, yeah, we know women uh, don't mean anything and they're second-class citizens. That's how you would have told the story. But this is one of those marks that shows us that Christianity is believable. They said the harder thing. They said the true thing. They're like, yeah, I know it's weird, but Jesus values women, right? Like, this is, this is what he did here. This is how it actually happened. It, it makes the story, uh, in one way, less believable because it didn't agree with the prejudices of first-century Judaism in Roman culture. But it helps us to see kind of as we stand back and look at it, wow, this, that makes the story more believable because they left in all the hard things. They left in all the ways that it didn't really agree with the culture at the time. So that's just one little note in verse 25. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now again, really a small thing, but it points to a bigger thing in the New Testament that we as followers of Jesus are supposed to care for each other. We call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ when we know Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God. So there's just one little episode that points to that. Um, that's not everything that this is teaching, right? But it reminds us of this reality of care, giving, uh, of having our lives changed because he's a life-changing king. 
helps us to see things differently, helps us to relate to each other in a different way. A couple of weeks, we're going to give you opportunities to sign up for small groups. Um, Small groups are not like some magic silver bullet that solve all of our problems, but it's a way of us gathering as a a larger church into smaller uh, clusters where we can actually do the one another's of Scripture, where we can actually get to know each other, pray for each other, share meals, do life together, live as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the ways that Jesus changes our life. Okay, we'll finish up here. It says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Um, Verse 28 says he's fulfilling scripture. said this already, and it's going to say it a few more times. Um, This is mind-blowing, all the prophecies, all the scriptures that are fulfilled in this moment, in these days. When you analyze it statistically, this is like an impossible thing. You could even say a miracle that Jesus is fulfilling all these different scriptures. We had a guest preacher, Tim Cartwright, preach on this section back in November. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you didn't hear it already. And he stressed this, all the prophecies that were fulfilled. He crunched some of the numbers and shared some of those statistics. But just another thing that should blow your mind as you see and you recognize all that Jesus did, all that Jesus fulfilled here. He's fulfilling all these scriptures. Verse 29, it says, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. That's a really, really important concept. I want to read a few more verses and then come back to it is finished. Okay, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a a high day, Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, right? So the breaking of the legs meant that they could no longer push up to get a breath, and they'd die more quickly. So the soldiers, verse 32, came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Um, Now you can look up stuff like this on the internet. You can talk to medical doctors. There's a couple of different ways that this makes sense medically. Um, One of the ways is that Jesus was actually in shock and had lost a lot of blood. And because of that type of shock, his, his lungs and around his heart were filling up with fluid. And that fluid filling up into those caverns of your body are then separating, right? And then the red blood cells are separating from the plasma or the water in the blood, and that's why blood and water comes out. Um, you can also go the symbolic route, right? Throughout Scripture, blood and water have a lot of symbolic weight, and we know that John loves to point these things out. But also, I think even more important than, than those two facts is that John is trying to say here, he really was a man, and he really did die. We know that there were cults at this time called the Cetic, which means like, he just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man, you know, kind of like he was some kind of vision or ghost or something. And they were teaching that because people in the Greek worldview thought that's just impossible. Like God couldn't really stoop to this level. The incarnation is not really possible. So John is going to emphasize here, no, this really happened. He really was a man and he really did die. So we we see this in, in the way John talks in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. John is saying this is important. You need to know the links that God went to to save you. He became a man, and he died a gruesome death. This is true. This is real. 
He didn't just float through this world, but he gave himself in a painful and gruesome way. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture again might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Encourage you to go back and follow that. Like I said, listen to Tim's sermon from November. Just even just read the footnotes in the Bible. You can go chase all those different um, allusions, all those different psalms and places in the Old Testament where these things are told about the Messiah and they're coming true all in one place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's really, it's amazing and encouraging to study that out. But as I said, I wanted to kind of go back and focus on this uh, phrase here where Jesus says it is finished. It's a really important phrase. Jesus says it is finished when this hour has been fulfilled and he dies for you and for me. And I've got a little picture here of a stamp that says paid in full. Um, some of you have maybe done bookkeeping or maybe you've been given a receipt where it says paid in full. And that's what this phrase would have been used for in the first century in Greek. It is finished. To Tetelestai. This is the phrase. You can go back. You can study history. You can look at what archaeologists dig up again and again. This phrase is written on receipts to show that payment has been made. And my kind of final emphasis for you and for me is, do we believe that? Do we believe that payment has been made? Or do we think somehow uh, our life is going to make payment? Do you see that Jesus has changed everything? That your life is different because he's paid for you? Right? We talked at the beginning that none of us could keep the law, but Jesus did. None of us would, would give ourselves in this way, but Jesus did. Jesus paid for you, and that changes our life. Right? Because if we don't believe it's paid in full, we're always scrapping and fighting and, and trying to get ahead, right? We're either living like an orphan who just feels like no one cares about me, no one's ever taken care of me, or we're, we're living in the lies of religiosity where we pretend I really do have it together, right? We're kind of puffing ourselves up and pretending we're better than we really are. But if we believe that it's paid in full, that the sacrifice has been made, then that settles us in our soul. That gives us a confidence in God's love. That gives us an ability to believe what Romans says. Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you can stop living your life in constant condemnation, then you're free to love and serve others. Then you're free to make your life count, to make these moments count. As we start at the beginning, we, we use this phrase in a lot of different ways. You've probably had pivotal points in your life where you're like, man, this moment really counts, this hour really counts, this season of my life really counts. The New Testament says that we are to redeem the time. We are to make every moment count. And apart from Jesus making this moment count, that's a crushing weight that none of us can live up to. But when you keep looking back to the reality that Jesus made this moment count, that you are paid in full, that you are saved, that you are secure in him, when you realize that, and when you keep running back to that reality and seeing God's love manifested in this way, then you can make the moments count. Then you can live every day saying, Jesus, what do you have for me today? I trust you. I know that you love me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have revealed your love for us in this, that Christ died for us. Help us to make these moments count. Help us to, to see how the hours come for Jesus so that we can make this hour, whatever's left for us, whatever life we have, weeks, months, years, help us to make it count. 
Help us to redeem the time. Help us to invest in others. Help us to have a life that glorifies you as we see you as this king that gave himself for us. We thank you. We praise you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.